Church, come on up, Larry. <clears throat> want to introduce my friend that doesn't need any introduction right here anymore. Uh, if, you, if you keep coming, you're going to be like part-time preacher here well, because no. you're showing up an awful lot, and no. we're glad. We'll, we'll see if we can't take care of that you know, today. Last time uh, Larry came, uh, we were in the book of Romans, and so it just happened the Sunday that he came. We were in Romans 7, and it's kind of a little tough chapter, and so he got to preach on that. So this year, he says, well, I'm coming down such and such date. And I said, well, good, because that's the day that we're supposed to preach on 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know what the sevens are all about, but uh, we're glad to hear what you have to say. And uh, uh, then, you know, if, if you mess something up, Al can fix it later exactly. or whatever. Exactly. No. Al said if we get another seven, it's like a, I, I think I'm on. Are you on? Okay, I'm on. yeah. That if we get a third seven, it's a jackpot. It's like oh, that's a, right, seven. <laughs> no. So I want to have a prayer with you, brother, thank and thank you again, and no. for your sweet wife Kathy being with you, yeah. and all the work that goes on uh, out of Athens, Greece, into yeah. all parts of the world. I'm sure we'll hear a little bit about that. A little bit. Uh, some of that too. So let's pray. Thank you, Father. As we uh, move our hearts and minds toward your word. We know it is there to nourish us, and we know that you will use Larry in a powerful way as he shares it. Thank you, Father, for his desire and heart for you and for uh, evangelism and his deep desire to grow and study the Word and share it with us. Bless him today in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I love you, brother. You guys bless us so much. Uh, I am part of the WFR live stream and CR community groups. Uh, thank you for Shaq and all those folks. Uh, the way that you connect us live streamers with you, this forever family. Uh, you CR folks, man, you guys are fighting the good fight and you minister to me ten times a day. Uh, you bless me. Uh, Kathy and I are now in our 11th year of ministry to Muslim refugees uh, in Athens, Greece. And like Mike said, it's kind of not happening as much in Athens. It's happening from Athens. And so evangelism is kind of where we started in the early years. But it seems like discipleship is all we're really doing these days because many of those that we've seen come to Christ are now in full-time ministry themselves. And so we have several Timothys and Timothets that we feel responsible for, and some of them are watching from Athens this morning. Hey, y'all. Uh, and so there's hundreds of others that are walking with Christ scattered all over Europe, and now even back in the Middle East, places like Iran and Afghanistan, that we consider our spiritual children. And so we've had to learn some stuff about discipleship and discipling them while we're there, and then from 6,000 miles away where we're at, uh, in writing and Zoom and that sort of thing, and discipling people who came from cultures that were so completely different than our way of thinking and uh, experience. But something I've noticed is that when you're there teaching and you see a refugee coming at you and they've got their finger in a Bible like this and they're coming to ask you a question, it's in one of three places. It's in Genesis, it's in Revelation, but most of the time it's in 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, chapter 11, or chapter 14. Okay, and this all deals with Scripture that we'd all just rather avoid, you know, we treat it kind of like a sleeping pit bull in somebody's front yard. It's like, I see you. 
but I'm just going to go around. It's like going around a big mud hole. Well, they don't know they're not supposed to do that. And jump both feet in the middle of the mud hole, and they kick that dog in the face, and they come to me and want to know what all this means, and this is what my life has become. And what am I doing? I'm being stalked. I think you have it in your pocket, don't you? I do. Yeah, don't put it in your pocket. Don't, don't do that. Hang it on your pocket. Okay. Slap, slap, slap my hand. There you go. Okay, yes, sir. Don't mess up anymore. Anyway, they kicked that uh, theological pit bull right in the teeth. And so, I mean, look at this. Verse 1, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. Now for the matters you've wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what I've been assigned to preach today. Mike Kellett calls me and said, guess what, buddy? Guess which chapter you drew? So... I guarantee you I will step on everybody's toes at some point today. So please do not listen to me. I'm an idiot. Okay? What I want you to hear is the voice of Jesus and nothing else. Uh, I'm very serious. This message is going to be intended for mature audiences only. I'm letting you know that going in. Because we're going to be talking very plainly about sex and pagan worship practices. You're going to hear some words you don't usually hear in the church. And so if you need to step out, if you need to click off your lives, please do it. But back, because the only place we're headed is Jesus Christ. We just got to go through a couple of mud holes to get there. So if you're up for that journey, buckle up and hang on. Ever wonder why it seems like everything in 1 Corinthians is about gender roles and men and women and sex and relationships, marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, incest, ecstatic speech, folks getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and eating meat, sacrifice to false gods? Because Paul is discipling people that come from a culture that is completely the opposite of his traditional Jewish culture. And that is what forms most of our ideas this day on how things were there and back then. Because of how we read the Jewish culture in the Old Testament, how we perceive interaction with Pharisees and Sadducees in the Gospels. And then we get to Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, and everything seems like it changes. Mike Kellett spoke at a One Kingdom Zoom conference a couple of weeks ago that I was privileged to be a part of. And he's talking to missionaries, preachers, really all over the globe. And he said something really great. He said, bad theology makes you ask bad questions. And what does that mean? I tell my students there are three primary rules as we read and open Scripture. The first is context. The second one is like it. It's called context. The third one is called context. We are so busy wanting to know what the Bible says and what it means to me. It's all about me. That we never hardly ever stop and wonder why these words were written in the first place. The who, what, when, where, and why. So what people do is they'll rip a single verse totally out of its context. They'll build an entire theology around that one verse. Then they'll look for other verses that seem to support that idea. And then they apply it universally. That's not only wrong, it's an abuse of Scripture. And what they do is asking, end up asking the wrong questions of the text. So bad theology leads to bad questions. Proverbs 23, verse 7 
says, for a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Okay, is that a verse about the power of a positive mental attitude? No, not at all, not even close. Different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works. And and the early Israelites were no strangers to that. They knew the heart was an organ in the chest. It sustains life. Did you even know that there's a heart attack mentioned in the Bible? Nabal, whose heart died inside him, as 1 Samuel 25. The Bible talks about the heart in ways that sometimes seem strange to you and me because the Israelites really had no concept of the brain. In fact, there's not even a Hebrew word that describes that. So every time they understood the word for heart, they use this word levav, which is the Hebrew word for heart. And so, for example, uh, they knew you, how you know in your heart. Deuteronomy 8, you understand, you make connections. Job 17, Proverbs 14, it says that wisdom dwells in the heart. It's in your heart that you discern between what's true and what's false. So in your heart, you think and make sense of the world, but it does still much more than that. The heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart. In fact, the phrase a broken heart comes from biblical Hebrew out of the book of Isaiah. The heart can even be depressed. Ecclesiastes, you experience fear in your heart. And Jesus tells us, don't let your hearts be troubled. But on the flip side, you know, where you experience joy is in your heart. To be happy in Hebrew is to be of good heart. So the heart is not only the generator of physical life, it's the center of your intellectual and emotional life, but still there's more. Your heart is where you make choices and decisions. They're called the desires of our heart. Psalm 37, so all of your true affections are centered there. So if anything that you want or desire, that's the thing you're going after. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in Scripture, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence. And Proverbs 4 says to guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. And so Jesus said it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. Uh, he said the human heart is deceitful above all things, irreversibly sick. Who can understand it? And he watched a whole generation turn its hearts away from God and start sacrificing their children to false gods like that was a good, heart, a good thing. And Jeremiah's heart is filled with despair. And so this is why in the minds of all of these biblical writers, the only hope for humanity is a complete and total replacement or transformation of the human heart. And so David, after committing adultery, after committing murder, pleads with God to create in me a new heart, create in me that has something that has never existed in me before. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So we all know that Corinth was a messed up place, but why was it so messed up? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. First thing I want to share with in very short form is five philosophical Greek ideas or schools of thought where we get that word from or ways of thinking that shaped the way people thought at the time of Jesus. So this first guy is a guy named Aristotle. He came up with the idea of empiricism. And it was based in the idea that we can know everything about the world, everything about science, everything about the universe through our five 
census, where we get the term empirical evidence. Okay, and so you have here's Thomas in John 20. Hey, Jesus has been risen from the dead. And he's like, hold on. Unless I put my fingers here, unless I put my hand here, I'm not going to believe it. This is empirical evidence that he's looking for. But Aristotle had a teacher by the name of Plato. And Plato came up with rationalism. And so he believed that, yeah, we can learn some stuff by the physical world, but there's this whole other world out there, and that's the true reality, and everything that we see in the physical is merely a shadow or an impression of that reality. And the truly enlightened are to escape the physical, get enmeshed in the spiritual, and then come back down here in the muck and teach the rest of us mortals all about it. Okay? About 30 years later, another guy comes along, and his name is Epicurus. And he calls it Epicureanism because it's all about him. And he says, no, we've already become enlightened to the point that it's time to move past living to please all of these gods and get on with the business at hand, which is pleasure, man. There's nothing coming after this. This is the only thing we got. Let's get it while we've got, you know, while we're here. And so that was most of the hedonism that the Greek culture became known for was born out of that school of thought. But he had a rival, and this guy's name is Zeno, came up with Stoicism. And he's like, what are you talking about, man? Don't you understand that restraint is the key to enlightenment and fulfillment? And he said, so I'm going to remove anything having to do with worldly pleasure out of, out of my life. And he comes up with this idea that everything that we do in this life has bearing on the next, so I'm going to get rid of all of that. And so these opposing philosophies between Zeno and Epicurus would have been the topic at hand that Paul stepped into when he's talking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Acts 17. That's the arena that they're talking about. And so right here, this is where this first verse of ideas. So he's removing all of this stuff out of his life. No sex, no food, no possessions. Imagine. And so the opposing philosophies here going on is where this first question in 1 Corinthians 7 is coming from. And so it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He addresses this again in 1 Corinthians 13 and in verse 3 where he says, if I give everything that I possess to the poor so that I may boast, it's a thing called status humanitarianism, okay? Or offer my body over to hardship, I'm getting rid of everything in my life. If I can do all that and have not love, I am nothing. And so Paul is addressing these schools of thought. The fifth one is a thing called dualism. It's really trendy at the time of Jesus. It's based in Eastern thought, which is circular. Really, we think in a linear fashion. A leads to B, leads to C, leads to and we draw conclusions. Eastern thought is much more, you can't really prove anything, so everything's up for grabs. The best way to describe this is the idea of incarnation. This is the basis of Buddhism, Hinduism, that sort of thing. Reincarnation, I mean. And so it's like, you know, trying to load Netflix. It's just the spinning wheel of death. It never ends. And so this is also the everything can be explained by tensions in the universe, good and evil, light, dark, physical, spiritual, yin, yang, new age. 
This is also the core of Gnosticism. And so this is helpful when understanding what John is pushing back against in the Gospel of John. First, second, third John. Test of spirits, not every spirit is from God. And so all of these were popular schools of thought at the time of Jesus. So all of this is what every Greek, every Roman is walking around with when Paul first visits Corinth in 50 A.D. How they think in their hearts. You with me? And so in their case uh, about God or in their case, the gods, which were many. And then there's the whole Jewish culture going on in Corinth because Claudius in Rome had kicked all the Jews out of Rome of Rome and sent them to Corinth. And this is Acts 18. And so all of these same ideas that we just described, these five different schools of thought and culture and all of that exist in our culture today in some form or another in the way people think. So they're part of our culture. You can't escape your culture. And this is the baggage that we bring with us when we open and read Scripture for the first time. Add to that all of the religious baggage that you've gathered over the years. And that's a lot to get through. So when we read passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 11, 14, all through the lens only of our culture and our way of thinking without taking a really serious look at the what who, what, when, where, and why that's going on, we tend to ask the wrong questions of the text. And then there's Paul himself. And Peter just tells us in, in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes the way, same way, in all of his letters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do all the scriptures to their own destruction. What is he saying? Don't be ignorant. Don't take Larry's word for this stuff. He's an idiot. Search this out for yourself. Pursue Christ. Pursue truth. Ask. Seek. Knock. You're the one driving the bus here. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as we think in our hearts, so are we. Okay? And now Paul tells us in Romans 12, we are in a battle over our minds, how we think in our hearts about Jesus. Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then and only then will you be able to test, approve, validate, confirm what God's will, good and perfect will is. In Philippians chapter 2, not only in my present, but how much more in my absence, Paul is discipling from a distance. Um, to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? So here, here's your salvation. Work it out. It's not a big deal for me to pick up a cat and throw it to Alan Robertson. But if he's the one catching that cat, he has got to work that out. And so if he has got one of these theological pit bulls attached to his backside, he is working that out. And we have had a habit of avoiding and walking around those things. They're there for a reason to teach us what's going on. So Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, we demolish arguments 
And we, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Is he saying, go out and pick fights with people and argue with them? He said, no, you're arguing with yourself. What you need to do is take every thought, every idea, every piece of your theology and make it obedient, captive to Christ. Make it obedient to Christ. We are in a battle over how we think in our hearts. And any piece of my theology that does not fall directly at the feet of Jesus cannot be true. Because Jesus is the only truth. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He is the only life. He is the only way. And every other way is not the way. And I have the ability to invite a way into myself that is not the way. I'm going to say it again. I have the ability to invite a way into me that is not the way, and that is exactly what is going on in 1 Corinthians. So every ship that, uh, I mean, why, why is this? Because Corinth is literally the crossroads of the known world at the time. It is the primary seaport that connects Rome to Asia, all the way east to the Caspian Sea. The Greek Orthodox flag today has a two-headed eagle on it, one looking east, one looking west. They think they're the center of the universe, kind of like America. Okay, and so what, what they're saying here is that so every ship that's coming through Corinth brought much more than just its cargo. It's bringing its culture, it's bringing its ideas, its philosophies, and a way of thinking. And so Corinth was one of the biggest slave markets in the known world at the time because when the Romans would go conquer these areas of Asia, they would enslave those people, bring them to Corinth and sell them in a slave market or move them through Corinth to Rome for sale in that market or to throw in with the lions in the Colosseum. And so that's why Paul is speaking to those who are slaves right here in Romans 7. Corinth probably functioned a little bit like New Orleans in 1820s America. And so sailors loved to visit Corinth. I don't think I've got to explain that. So to be referred to as a Corinthian woman was absolutely the worst thing that you could ever possibly be called. And we've all heard about the Temple of Aphrodite at the top of Corinth. We've read all about temple prostitutes that dwelt there, a thousand of them, male and female. But most historians agree that that Temple of Aphrodite fell into ruin after Rome first conquered Corinth in 146 B.C., And that it was no longer in use when Paul got there in 50 A.D. So that's not necessarily what we're talking about. What we're saying is everything that used to go on in Acre, Corinth, 1,800 feet above the city on this mountain, a two-hour walk to get there, was now happening in the streets of the city. And so we're going to hit a bit of a mud hole. If you need to step out, go for it. This will be a quick one. It's a small one. Homosexual acts were prevalent in both Greek and Roman cultures, well documented. However, most of the participants in these acts did not at all consider themselves to be homosexuals in the way that we think of it. Although that did exist. And here's why. Because in their thinking, not all sex was sex, really. 
And so a man would go to a male prostitute and use him like a Corinthian woman. This is an actual phrase, and somehow that didn't count. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, so I didn't really commit adultery. I don't know what y'all are laughing at. I really don't. This is why Paul is specifically speaking about men who have sex with men in chapter 6 and verse 9. And I'm telling you that this, I mean, he addresses it again to the Roman culture in Romans 1, 18 and following, men and women. And so this is still a prevalent mindset and a prevalent practice in many of the cultures that we come into contact with. Kathy and I have actually had to disciple people through this very issue. I'm telling you, this is real. So back to the context of what Paul is saying here in chapter 7 about marriage relationships. Why does Paul seem to us to contradict himself, like here in chapter 7, telling that widows and virgins they should not marry, while instructing Timothy in Ephesus in in uh, 5.14 that the young widows, widows should marry? That's because what happens in Ephesus is not the same thing that is happening In Corinthians, Paul is discipling people. First Corinthians is not a theological dissertation. We try to get it to be that, and it's not that. And so when we're reading First Corinthians, what we're reading is discipleship in action. It's called applied theology. Okay, and this is why we have a hard time picking these verses apart. On top of that, we're only getting half the conversation. Paul has already written them one letter. We don't have that letter. They have written him back. We don't have that letter. This is where we're at beginning the conversation in First Corinthians. Another thing, we tend to view the role of women in the Bible from a purely Jewish perspective. The entire Old Testament gives us that view and then seems to support that view when we get to the Gospels and we see things like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. And she's asking Jesus to heal her daughter and she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table pointing out her culture, or the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Jesus is asking her for water, and she says, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you even ask? And so, but the things are not like that for the Greek women, and Luke gives us insight in Acts 17. And so, here's Paul and Silas. They're in Thessalonica. This is 160 miles straight north of Athens. Some of the Jews are persuaded and they join Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent Greek women. Happens again, verse 11, they go 35 miles over to Berea. They go in there and the Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? They weren't being ignorant. They were reading the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was really true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and some Greek men. So this word prominent literally means women of upper class. 
So we've left the pure Jewish culture. Now we're in a class system. Paul is the Jew of Jews, but he's a Roman citizen. He's hip to this. And so he comes 140 miles to Athens, does his thing with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Mic drop. He leaves and goes over 50 miles to Corinth. What does he find? Prominent upper class women who had influence, they had position, they had power, they had money. Not every woman, upper class women. I told you, so why, why, why does it seem to us that Paul is often so harsh in his directives to and about women in First and Second Corinthians? I told you, I'm going to make everybody mad. Um, there's no one safe. Because many of the Greek women were literally mad. And I'm not talking just angry, I'm talking spiritually and mentally. Here's the big mud hole. So if you need to step out, give us about ten minutes and we'll meet you on the other side. How do I know that this is true? Because even though there's pagan and mystic worship going on all over the region of Greece and Rome... There's something very unique happening at Corinth that just wasn't present in other places. This is Dionysus. He is the Greek god of wine and revelry. The Romans called him Bacchus. He's the god of madness. Same god, different name. He is always depicted in statue and artwork as holding a wine chalice and clusters of grapes with these things called illuminations that are coming out of his mind. How do we know this is going on in Corinth from the historians from the first and second century who went there, saw what was happening and wrote about it? This is the exact same source that you know of of Aphrodite's temple and the thousand temple prostitutes. Uh, so in the history of Greek theater, in plays, actors who played roles depicting Greeks, I mean, uh, uh, Corinthians, either male or female, were always played as drunk. Because that was how they were perceived by everybody else in society. In fact, the archaeological uh, excavations of the marketplace, the Agora, in ancient Corinth, has identified no less than 33 different wine shops or stores. This is an area about the size of this room. Uh, it's just amazing. And so, don't get drunk on wine. It leads to debauchery. That's Ephesians 5.18. Is wine a problem in Ephesus? Yes. Is it a problem in Corinth? Yes. Is it a problem in everywhere? Yes. Uh, are they worshiping Dionysus everywhere? Yes. Even in Thessalonica? Yes. Why doesn't First and Second Thessalonians read like First and Second Corinthians? Because there's something unique happening in Corinth that's not happening in other places. Uh, and so Corinth was the center of something that was called Dionysic cults or Bacchic cults. And so most of the members, uh, well, here it is, Dionysus Bacchus, the god of wine and revelry, is also known as the god of the orgastic cry. There's words you've never heard in a church in your life. He is also known as the exciter of women. And so all most all of the followers in these cults are women. In fact, the second level initiates, the priestesses are exclusively women. This is a position that is not 
available to men at all. And they are called maenads. And this word maenads literally translates to the raving ones, like stark raving mad. And so what was this worship like? First order of business, wine, wine and more wine, often mixed with opiates that were available from Asia because the ships made that possible. And the, the, this whole thing would involve everyone present trying to reach a state of the total loss of control and inhibition. And so the second thing was clamor and confusion, loud, noisy. Specific women were assigned to ring Corinthian bronze cymbals and gongs. First Corinthians. 13, verse 1, if I can speak in this ecstatic tongue, in the, in the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I'm nothing more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. This is a relief that it was found in Corinth, dated to the first century. It's sitting in the London Museum. This is real. This is actually going on in the time that we're talking about. Uh, and so Paul's making a very poignant thing here. Other women are assigned to chanting and screaming. And so you've got women screaming, cymbals crashing, others dancing wildly in this drunken state. All of this is to arrive at what was known as a Bacchic frenzy. At this point, the Maynads would bring forth a meat offering, an animal sacrifice. It's not like you think. They're not burning anything on an altar. That's why there's meat for sale. They're not burning it up or consuming it. So these maenads uh, would have the only way to do this. They would literally take a, a, a calf or a goat or a pig and they would rip this live animal apart with their bare hands. They would take these pieces, drink the blood, eat the flesh. And this is meant to be a bloodbath because it is only in this frenzy that one could have communion with this God in ecstasy. So great. Hang on to the word ecstasy. Ecstasy so great that the soul would literally seem to leave the body so that you could have union with this, this outer body that experiences where this comes from. And so while being inhabited by this spirit, these illuminations would begin in the form of ecstatic speech. Ecstatic being ecstasy, ecstatic speech, or this orgastic cry uttered through these maenads. These illuminations are then delivered to the drunken participants who then interpret what they thought that meant. And that was authoritative word because they had been entirely controlled by the presence of some dominant intelligence. So the Greeks demand a sign, the Jews, I mean, the, uh, the Jews demand a sign, the Greeks look for knowledge. There are recorded accounts of Alexander the Great coming to Corinth and commanding groups of these maenads and deploying him, them with his armies as he's trying to conquer India. Okay, and so this is 400 years before Paul would have been there. Was all this going on during the time of Paul? That's the question. I think it was. And here's why I think it was. This is the interior of one of the chambers at the uh, archaeological museum in Corinth. I've been there dozens of times. The One Kingdom crew that was over with us stood in this room with us four months ago. If you see on the right side, you'll see a mosaic on the wall. 
always looked and admired that. It's amazing. And what they would do is inset that into the floor. This is an uh, up-close version of that. You know who that is? Dionysus. You see the four wine chalices in the corner? And you see the illuminations coming out of his head. That was pulled out of a temple that they call Temple E, one of eight of these pagan temples in addition to the Jewish synagogue that was there, and they've dated that to the mid-first century. We look at this stuff and we think, well, that's just harmless Greek mythology. But I believe this was Corinthian reality. There's just too much in the text that supports all of this idea of how bad it was. Was it really that bad? Were people really that bad? Do you remember Gomorrah? Yeah, people are that bad. Okay, that's the worst of it. Y'all can come back now. My point, I have the ability to invite a way into me that is not the way. For the Greeks and the Romans of Corinth... That's what worship might have looked like, might have felt like, might have sounded like, might have smelled like, might have tasted like. And this is why Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion and disorder. He's a God of peace. And that's the way it is in all the churches of the Lord's people. And he's saying, if an unbeliever comes in to worship with you, will they not think you're mad? Will they not think you're out of your mind? You can't look like that. Let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality among you. Why is Paul given such harsh commands to women in Corinth? 1 Corinthians 14.34 Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. What law is Paul talking about here? People have looked forever for some obscure Jewish law that tells women to remain silent. And it's not there. You know why it's not there? It had nothing to do with the Jewish culture at all. This is the Roman authorities. This is Claudius in Rome enacting a law prohibiting women from nocturnal worship events. Nighttime. Okay? Because even the Romans, they're trying to regain control. Even the Romans, crucifixion... Colosseum, gladiators are thinking this is just a bit too much. They're trying to gain control of a situation that is totally out of control. So why is Paul so tough on women's roles and conducts in the church? Here's why I think. Here's why I think women were such a big issue with Paul. Because women are the standard bearers In any society, you look at any society at any point in history, any point in time, including our own. If the women are corrupt, that society is going to be corrupt. That's what ultimately made Rome fall. Uh, Men are going to be corrupt. The children don't stand a chance and that kingdom will fall. Women are literally the last standing line of defense In any society, men are supposed to be the front line, protectors, defenders, spiritual leaders. But when that fails, when you lose the women, you've lost it all. 
society will follow if the women become immoral. We are always praying for strong male spiritual leadership, and that's what the Lord intends. But when that's am, when that is absent, it is the women who step up into that role. And they're the ones fighting back against the destruction that is coming for the people that belong to them. And that is exactly what Proverbs 1 is trying to say to us. A woman of noble character is worth more than anything that you can possibly imagine. People who belong to her receive honor because of her, not because of themselves. She brings honor to them because of her character. She holds a standard of conduct, of goodness, of faithfulness, of rightness in this world. Honor her for all of that. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord, a woman whose heart belongs to Jesus and everything else in her life falls behind that, that woman is to be praised. For as a woman thinks in her hearts, so is she. Y'all, I know that this is a lot and I'm sorry. But what is really going on in 1 Corinthians 7? They're asking the wrong questions. Bad theology. They care more about justifying their behavior than they do about Jesus. And they'll use any logic to get it done. Paul is saying in verse 26... Because of this present crisis, I think we understand what he's talking about. So Paul answers them, hey, married people, stop using sex as a weapon. It does not prove that you're more spiritual than your spouse. Stop it. That's not what it's for. Take care of each other's needs. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Put Jesus ahead of your marriage and Jesus will heal your marriage. If your spouse refuses Christ, you don't kick them out. You let them see Jesus living in you. Be salt and light because you don't know what Jesus is going to do in that situation. Wait on Him. They're ultimately responsible to God for their own choices, not you. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus can do in you and out of you. You belong to Jesus. All sexuality, all sexual immorality is sexual immorality. Single people, same message. All sex is sex. If you need to get married, do it. Keep yourself pure. If you want to be single, do it. Make Jesus the only true desire of your heart and He'll give you the gift it takes to get that done. Keep yourself pure. If you were a slave, when you came to Jesus, you're now free in Christ. If you were free in Christ, you are now Christ's slave. What you've done is relinquish all rights to yourself. It's not about you anymore. It's about Christ in you. Paul is saying, folks, in verse 29, the time is short. The world in its present form is passing away. Things are going to get much worse before they ever get better. How terrible it will be in the last days. But Jesus is coming back. On the clouds of heaven in His mighty power, He's going to sit on His glorious throne and He's going to judge everybody that ever walked on this planet on one thing. What was the true desire of their heart? But until that day comes, following Jesus 
in this world right now is a matter of heart and a matter of desire. Keeping yourself pure in a world that is sinking into a cesspool of evil all around you is a matter of heart and it's a matter of character. Our lives, our relationships, our choices are all pure reflections of how we think in our hearts about Jesus and the authority He has over us. What is the heart of the matter? Here it is. You who were baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in you. Because He lives, you live. You do not belong to yourself. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. And there is now no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no slave. There's no free. There's no male. There is no female. There is only Christ who is in all, through all. Everything is by Him and for Him. This is not about your culture. It's not about your country. It's about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King and the only King. King there is. That's the heart of the matter. This morning, do we honor Him with our lips, but our hearts are really somewhere else? You and I already know the answer to that truth, and we know it in one place, and that's in our heart. This morning, if you need to address the matter of your heart, then do it now. Please come.